This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Carol Jan Borovietzi, who is a professor of economics at the University of Southern Denmark. Today we are going to talk about his paper, Good Reverberations, Teacher Influence in Music Composition Since 1450, which is forthcoming at the Journal of Political Economy. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jordi. It's a big pleasure to be here. Carol, can you start by telling us what is the question in this paper and why is it important to study this question? Yes, of course. So the paper is about teachers' influence on the style of a student's work. So uh, it's not so much, we, we, we know already quite a bit about how teachers may play a role in increasing the quality of students and so on. The question here in this paper is a bit different. It is on the, uh, the impact on the style of work of the students. So a more subtle question. And then there are some follow-up analyzes um, which explore how long does this influence last? What are the implications and so on? So uh, the, the distinction between quality and style, I am wondering whether this is a, a distinction that is very stark in the context of music composition, because at some point, you know, the, the way in which somebody composes can be interpreted as both quality, but also style, right? Like, like maybe these are not like the very uh, stark distinction, but instead maybe middle points along some type of continuum. A fair point. In, indeed, style and quality are somehow related. Also, you know, what matters very much is the context of, of the style, right? So in what way do you produce and at what time period or in what place? Um, when it comes to, to other areas, perhaps style plays also a role, but it's not often um, kind of appreciated. I mean, think about, you know, many areas of the cultural and creative industries, architectural style, for example, right? Um, which, is, which is, you know, a very uh, important characteristic of buildings, of cities and so on. You also, you know, could, could go even farther and, you know, think about leadership styles, a style in which politicians deliver talks. So even though it's, it's, it's a very kind of subtle, kind of, you know, narrowly defined question here with regards to music and music composers, the implications are potentially much, much wider. And bear in mind, I think in all of these contexts, the way how people do things, so, so essentially the style in which they, they work and so on, is likely affecting, you know, the perception of their work and as such also the quality of, uh, of their outputs. So I think that the, the emphasis in the fact that here you're studying the effect on style, I think is important because when I uh, first read the paper, I was a little bit surprised by the fact that this was an empirical question. Let me, let me give you an example. In the paper, you write, whether or not teachers or mentors in creative fields leave an imprint on their students that shape their future work is an empirical question. And I was wondering, how can this be? Because in some sense, by definition of what teaching is, it has to leave an imprint. <laughs> Otherwise, it is not teaching. You haven't taught anything. And to the extent that the knowledge of the teachers is at least partially idiosyncratic rather than being completely general, teachers are going to leave an imprint that is idiosyncratic on their students. But your emphasis here is that this may be with the case with us, or it may be obvious with respect to quality, but it's not so obvious with respect to style. In other words, the emphasis on the creative fields in the quote that I gave you from your paper is the important here. For another uh, fair point. So I, I, I think that teaching can take 
many forms. Think about one teacher who just kind of presents the overview of different styles, right? Like, a, you know, provides a sort of a summary of what styles there are. And then in contrast to this, think about another teacher who, who really succeeds consciously or unconsciously in transmitting his own style, his own preference, his own way of composing, of working onto the student, right? So things that maybe are not so easy um, to observe in, in many contexts. In music, it seems to be a hypothesis that is accepted, but it was never really tested. So I think that the first contribution here is that we are com coming up here with this quantitative, relatively, you know, econometric heavy approach, a data-based approach, which then is used to really document this, what maybe musicologists already thought to be true, but have not really tested it, at least, you know, in a, in a, in a bigger quantitative setting. I think that this is a, a really good point that very r rarely is made by economists. I, I think that we as a profession expect that everything is going to be surprising. <laughs> Right? Unless a result is counterintuitive, it's not worth, uh, you know, it's not worth uh, having an impact. But if empirical work has taught us anything over, over the last 30 to 50 years, is that lots of things that we believe were true actually turn out to not be true. Hmm? So another way of saying this is, imagine that you did the exercise that you are going to do in this paper, and the answer is no. Teachers have no effect on their students then we could have two alternatives. Number one, we believe that there is no causal effect. Number two, we believe that the study has some type of flaw. Somehow, maybe there is not sufficient statistical power to detect an effect. I will go for number two 100% of the time uh, because my preconception will be that there has to be an effect in the context of music composition in 16th century Europe. But even if we kind of already knew this, it's still worthwhile doing the exercise of documenting and empirically. Um, I fully agree with you. Um, and bear in mind that this is only the kind of first step um, of the analysis um, included in the paper, right? So, so in, in this first step, we, we really document that this exists, all right? And then what follows are a number of questions, right? Say, how long does this influence last, right? So, can, so can, can a student eventually escape it? Does it mean that only good ideas are transmitted? It's only the kind of good, you know, style uh, taught and transmitted from teacher to student, or can also bad ideas influence, and in this case, likely negatively, the student in the future. So, so, so an, a number of kind of follow-up questions come possible here in this, in this uh, unusual context of this research. So your paper is going to have two parts then. Uh, firstly, in, let's say document the main effect, and then do an array of uh, auxiliary analysis or heterogeneity analysis to look at this uh, questions that you mentioned and, and some others. There is an incredible array of data sets in this paper. Probably we don't have time to go through all of them, but can you give us at least an idea of the most important ones? Of course. Um, so indeed, the, the data collection was a, was a very big time-consuming part of the, of the project. The main and the perhaps most well, important and most interesting data module is on the compositions itself, especially on the content of composition. So we have used here two volumes of dictionaries of musical themes, and uh, these dictionaries include for a more than 6,000 classical works written by almost 800 composers, 
some key features, some key attributes of each of the compositions. And um, let me maybe tell you also a, a, a word about the dictionary. So these dictionaries are written for people who are not tone deaf like myself, but who hear some sort of tune in their um, head, but maybe don't remember who composed it or, or what is the title of the, of, the, of the work. So they can look in the dictionary, in the end of the dictionary, in the notation index, and they can identify this sequence of, of, of notes. Um, and this leads them then back to the to the main part of the dictionary where they find a lot of information about the, a particular composition, uh, who composed it, for what instrument or instruments. Um, there is also a, a sequence of notes provided, a key signature, time signature, and so on. And we extract all this information from these dictionaries. So what we end up with are, are is, is a is a set of unusual. Um, well, it's a set of key attributes of a creative output. And then um, the idea is very simple how to, how, to, how to use it. We calculate similarity coefficients between pairs of composers or between single works. So let's imagine for a second that we are all composers, me, uh, you, Jordi, and all the podcast listeners. Um, what we do is we calculate similarity coefficients. So we essentially estimate how similar am I to you, Jordi, or to any other listener. And then if you were my teacher, the empirical question is, am I more similar to you than to anybody else? And this is the main data source here. Then um, we've spent um, a lot of efforts to collect data from uh, biographies of the uh, composers covered here. And from the biographies, we have obtained some kind of key information about the, the, the year and place where they were born and died. Also about the cities that they have visited and when, which conservatories they have attended who were the teachers, their students, and so on, and so on, and much more. So we, 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 are, we are ending up with a, an, another big data module with a lot of information on the composers covered. Then we have a couple of uh, different sources for the quality of the composer. So even though the main kind of focus here is on style, well, quality implications are, are very important, and it's something that, well, at, at least we in economics want to assess. And uh, this is done also in a couple of ways. So we have word count measures, so uh, the length of biogra biographical entries. We, we use some indices of the best composers from kind of established sources. So for example, Murray um, compiled such lists of the most important composers of all times based on a large number of um, reference works. Um, and then we also have contemporaneous um, Spotify consumption data. So we retrieved from Spotify things like the number of followers of individual composers or their popularity score. Um, yes, so this, this, these, are, these are the three uh, main data modules here. So for the main baseline um, regression in which you are trying to study whether two composers are more similar in terms of the style, if one of them was the teacher of the other, you are going to run a regression on this pairwise similarity that you were mentioning earlier as a function of the, whether they are connected. Can you describe how does the data for this regression look like and what is the empirical strategy that you use to study this question? Yes, of course. So first, I think we need to take a step back and just consider what is style or what you know determines style. And style is likely a function of indirect influences and direct influences. The indirect influences, these are all the external factors. 
such as you know the, the zeitgeist, something in the air. So um, factors that are specific to a given place and time and possibly the interaction of these two. And then we have direct influences. And the direct influences, this is the interaction with other individuals, for example, such as with, with a teacher. So in the empirical strategy, we are controlling for all the indirect influences. And the empirical strategy is also based on, it's a, it's a pair, it's, it, is, it is estimated as a, as a pair level. So, so we are comparing pairs of composers and look at the difference between kind of realized connections, so where the teacher and student was actually connected and compare it with not realized connections, so where, where the two composers were not connected. Um, and in these models, we, we control for, well, a number of commonality kind of controls. So we account for the common birth country, time period, the interaction of this um, of the two composers in question. We account for the distance, uh, both in, in geographic terms and in, and in temporal terms, the distance between the composer pair. And then also, I think important to mention is the reference group. So we condition the analysis to pairs where the candidate teacher was alive for at least one year when the candidate student was in the formative age. So we are not comparing, you know, a, say, you know, if, if once again, coming back to this example, you are my, my teacher, we are not comparing your influence um, on me with, with other economists who maybe passed away a, a long time ago, like uh, Adam Smith, let's say. Um, but we are narrowing down the benchmark to only those who could have been hypothetically my teacher as well. Of course, in the, in the appendix, we have uh, many pages dedicated to testing uh, these reference groups, you know, changing, changing this and so on, and, and the results are very robust. Conceivably, nowadays, one of us could be the teacher of the other, and we, communi we could communicate via Zoom, as, as we are doing right now, in fact. Mm -hmm. But of course, at that time, that was not possible. So in addition to the temporal overlap, one would expect that there has to be also a geographical overlap because even if two uh, composers coincided in time, if one of them was living in Germany and the other one was living in Italy, then th those mentoring or teacher relationships couldn't conceivably have occurred. Yes, absolutely. You are, you are, you are right. The distance has been kind of more critical in the past. Um, bear in mind, though, that, that, that um, traveling was possible. And in fact, the famous composers, it is fairly well known that they have traveled um, quite extensively throughout their lives. So in some other papers, I looked at the migration propensities of, of famous music composers. And, you know, they were traveling partly, you know, in 17th, 18th, 19th century, as, as much as you would expect perhaps nowadays from a, from a, you know, a pop star. So extremely active in terms of mobility. And, and, and then also one could want to analyze the necessity to, to be in the same city in order to connect. Um, and this is also done in one of the robustness estimations where um, within city similarity is estimated. So essentially, I'm not, I, am, I am narrowing further down the reference group to, to pairs of composers where both the realized and the unrealized connection has been based in the same city at the same time. Um, yeah. I, I guess that this conversation has revealed or is going to reveal that I know close to nothing about classical music. So, you know, forgive me if you think that this is not like a, you know, a relevant issue or question at all. But one thing that I noticed is that uh, one of the measures of similarity that you have is the similarity in terms of uh, the key. 
And they are, you know, there are quite lots of keys and everything, but my understanding is that the main distinction is between major key and minor key. This is like a, a big distinction. And that major key is typically associated with happy music and minor key with sad music, you know. And therefore, one thing that I was wondering is whether they're like the, the demand side of these compositions may be playing a, a role here. You were talking earlier about something in the air. One potential representation of that something in the air is that there are musicians who say compose for the church and other musicians compose for novels. And novels want dance music and the church wants requiems. Therefore, <laughs> You are going to compose in the major key if your uh, patron is a noble, but on the minor key if your patron is the church. And maybe your disciples also inherit or belong to the milieu of, you know, nobles versus church as well. And that could be the man side that could be generating this, uh, this type of relation that is uh, additional to the you know, like I guess a good analogy here would be the contextual effects of Mansky in the PFX literature, you know, something that happens to a classroom, you know, that is that is correlated uh, across students. Yeah, I, I think that you are suggesting here an, an, a fascinating research question, which is, of course, related to this paper, but but it's a little bit distinct, I would say. And, and, I, and I think that indeed a lot of could be done with the distinction between major and minor keys and how it is reflected to, to mood. Um, my kind of, if I, if I can just, you know, tell here as a, a, little, a little kind of uh, anecdote about, about, a side, about another project of mine. Um, I have been um, working on a, on a paper where I've tried to approach the kind of big question whether um, unhappiness, whether the emotional state affects, affects the quality of your, of your creative output. So it, it, it you know it, it goes back to actually ancient times when when uh, it was hypothesized that the genius must be mad that there is some relationship between these two and 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 many have studied this not so much again in economics but but a, a outside in 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 psychology and so on and what I have achieved in in, in another paper um, how are you my dearest Mozart published in in Restat, I have obtained a, a kind of unique lifetime covering well-being index for a, a small sample of famous music composers from uh, letters, from the written correspondence authored by them. Um, so it is kind of, you know, uh, like based on the, on, the, on the idea that instead of asking you, how do you feel, Jordi, uh, we better look uh, at the way how you communicate today, what words you use and so on. Um, and then this kind of unusual well-being index is used to, to kind of study how negative emotions matter for, for creativity. And, 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 and I'm able also to identify there's a causal relationship, I believe, and, uh, uh, and, and negative emotions actually enhance creativity as, as believed by, by many. Um, and then I think a very nice follow-up project would be related to the major or minor key. So essentially, depending on the mood of the composer, what type of music does he or she compose, right? So this would be very, very interesting. What you bring here up is, is yet another, uh, I think, fascinating idea to, to look at, uh, you know, what type of music is composed depending on you know who who buys this music who demands it right whether it is a charge and or 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 nobility or or the king yeah this is something i i could actually analyze here because i have 
also co uh, collected data on, on the employment of these composers. Uh, so I know whether they are uh, working for uh, the charge or for the king and so on. And this data, by the way, will be made public, I think in April uh, 2022, so, so very soon, once the paper is published. Um, so maybe even somebody else would like to follow up on this and, and uh, you know, explore it a bit more. So the, um, before we go into these uh, baseline results, the other question about the um, empirical strategy that I had related to the, the creation of the, of the data set was with respect to the survival uh, of these composers. So obviously, uh, you know, the data exercise is, is very thorough, but of course it is limited by the fact that there were a lot of musicians in history. And most of them, you know, did not survive in their, you know, in their work. Their work has not really reached us. So here in your data set, there are some composers that are really famous, but the sample mostly includes less famous composers. Uh, and I was wondering whether this survival, especially of these less famous composers, may itself have been affected by similarity. So here is my, my analogy. Imagine that Mozart has two disciples, okay? Mozart, really important. Two disciples, and, you know, one of them randomly happens to do work that is very similar to Mozart's in terms of all these uh, keys and everything. The other one does work that is incredibly different. Now, and both of them are really, from a quality perspective, quite unremarkable. Is it possible that the music of the most similar composer may have survived because people later on found it interesting in terms of expanding or complementing some of the themes in Mozart's music, or maybe because Mozart created a taste for a certain type of music and that disciple was fulfilling that demand. You can, I mean, I'm making the argument with respect to the disciples, but you could also make the argument with respect to the teachers. You know, maybe, you know, the teacher who resembles most Mozart is more likely to survive as well. Indeed, it is, it is one possibility, right? So kind of replicating Mozart would enhance your chance to be remembered. On the other hand side, being original, being, you know, creative, uh, doing something new, maybe, you know, argued by others also to be conducive. To, um, to be more memorable. And, you know, it's, it's not really clear what, what at the end of the day pays off. Um, in the ideal setting is if I had also another dictionary of non-famous composers, right, and could compare the famous ones with the non-famous ones, this unfortunately is not, you know, achievable on this scale. However, bear in mind that we cover here the entire lifetimes of music composers. Some have been, you know, famous during certain periods of their lives, earlier in life or perhaps later in life. Um, so, so, so this kind of popularity um, is, is often evolving over an artist's lifetime. Um, if you are a student, if you are at a, at, a, at a very kind of early formative age, you are unlikely to be famous to begin with, unless you are Mozart, I guess. So, so also in, in this sense, there are some, some, some you know, well, at least periods of, a, a, of, of lifetime covered when, when one is not famous. Um, and then finally, you know, popularity and fame has been bestowed upon, upon some composers uh, often many years after they passed away. So once again, you know, not being famous during during lifetime uh, uh, and yet later discovered, um, this happens, right? Um, of course, you know, I, I, I agree here with you that the bias and the concern exist that perhaps the historical 
archives are better available for those who have been famous during lifetimes, right? Um, so there is a concern, um, but I don't think that, that it really uh, matters so much for, for the results in this paper. Okay, so wonderful. What are the baseline findings respect to the effect of teachers on their disciples? The baseline findings are, are, are based on uh, the aforementioned uh, similarity measures. So, so how similar am I if I'm a student to my teacher versus to other unconnected composers? Um, we have as many as uh, eight different similarity measures, so mostly based on n-grams, and um, some of these measures uh, looked at the percentage of collective n-grams shared, so essentially, you know, how many sequences of music notes do I have in common with you, Jordi, if you are my teacher, uh, divided by the sequences that we have among ourselves. Um, other measures look at uh, the distribution of n-grams and our cosine similarity measures. And all, all these measures actually deliver very um, similar and consistent pictures suggesting that connected composers, you know, a student and a teacher connected, are more similar to one another by about 0.1 to 0.3 standard deviations than to unconnected composers. Um, is this big or small? It is difficult for me from from the outside to know whether this is a big effect or or a small effect i mean i would expect that given given the fact that it's like historical data and all that this effect is much smaller than the true effect because because of measurement error uh, in the independent variable maybe these these connections are not being measured super well and so on but if you interpret this coefficient let's say 0.2 standard deviations is that big or small? A good question. And I think a very difficult to answer kind of directly as you, as you, as you kind of hope for. But let me answer it a bit indirectly and tell you um, that this effect is big enough to matter over a significant portion of the student's life, right? So the teacher influences the student. Now, this is based now on, on not on composer level similarity, but a similarity at the composition level. And here the results show that the student remains similar to the teacher up to 20 years after he met, after he first connected with the teacher. So this influence and uh, this higher similarity persists, you know, uh, up to two, de two decades after one has connected with, with, with the teacher. Another even more interesting insight is at the multi-generational level. So let's consider, you know, now students over a couple of generations. So, you know, you are my teacher, I have a, a, a student. So your student's student, is she more similar to you? And the results here in this multi-generational analysis show that up, up into the third generation, the third degree connection, their composers are seem, seem to be more similar to the, to the teacher. The result is, is, is very strong for the second generation um, of, of students, right? So I think it really shows that, that um, it is an effect that, that really matters. It is large enough to be persistent over time and even across generations of composers. So you are now referring to what I wanted to think as like the second part of the paper, which, as you mentioned in the beginning, refers to the additional insights that come after having identified the main effect. The first one that you refer to is the, the fact that this uh, you know, uh, average effect, uh, which is measured on average over the lifetime of the disciple, can be decomposed into effects 
uh, across decades of the life of the disciple following the meeting with the teacher. That's why you said this is data is at the composition level. So this will be, can you describe what the sample looks like in this other regression? What is an observation in this other regression? Is it like a pair of compositions, one belonging to the teacher, the other one belonging to the, stu- to the, to the student? Exactly, exactly. So that would be like a massive, that's a massive data set, right? Because now the pair of composition is exploding. It is and it isn't. Indeed, it's a, it's, it's a much bigger data set. But bear in mind that we need to identify the year when a comp- composition was composed, right? So, so essentially, we need to be aware of the fact that a teacher may have been influenced by the student as well. In order to deal with this, we consider the style of the teacher only from before the time of the meeting with the student. And then the style of the student is only based on compositions after he met with the teacher, after they connected. And it is also, sorry, it is also the case that maybe some less famous composers may not have compositions that are very high in number. They may not even have a composition for every decade of their life afterwards that has survived, obviously, right? So, so... I'm thinking of every composition that Beethoven made, that's probably a big number, but for many of these composers, maybe not so many have survived. I would I would tend to agree with you, but what is, I think, even more determining here is the type of works that you produce, right? You know, composers writing theatrical works like opera would compose much less than those producing, let's say, chamber music, right? You know, some composers were writing, apparently, you know, a, a chamber concert within, within, you know, a very short period of a, of a few days or even shorter. It's, it's a good point, the, the number of, of available compositions. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure this really matters for this result, for the result on the persistency of the effect. So as, as long as we, as, we re, as we keep some observations for a large number of students uh, after they met the teacher, we should be able to have here a reliable estimation as long as, as these um, compositions that we observe are not kind of you know, biased in, in some way, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect them to be biased, but just to recap this this result. So there are there are dummies for every decade of the life of the disciple interacting with the connection. And then we have that the coefficient is positive at less than 10 years, then it is increases at between 11 and 20, but then it decreases dramatically between 20 and 30. One thing that, correct me if I'm wrong, that that, uh, I find surprising here is that the coefficient becomes actually negative and statistically significant after 30 years. This would imply, if taking literally, that the compositions of students and their teachers 30 years after their relation are more different than the compositions of acute pairs that were actually not connected with each other, say the same teacher with another student. And I'm wondering... How can this be? What is the theoretical mechanism through which this will happen? Yes, this is this is a, in, in, indeed a very interesting here insight, and I, I think I would I would like to interpret it as a as a departure from the influence of the teacher that happens a sufficiently long time after one has been taught by the teacher, right? So so you know thirty and more years. Uh, perhaps even after the teacher uh, passes away, the similarity to the teacher decreases. 
However, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not highlighting this result so much in the paper because unfortunately the number of observations is rather low for such a long time period after the meeting of the teacher. Um, and this, I, I, haven't, I haven't mentioned this yet. In, as, as, as you have indicated, there are indeed many more uh, composition per level observations, but in order to conduct this analysis here, we need to know exactly the year when a composition was composed. Um, and this is available, unfortunately, for only a rather small sample of the compositions. We, we know kind of more or less in what time period or, or in, in, what, in, in what life period of a composer something has been composed, but very often the exact year is missing. And if we don't have it, we, we cannot reliably uh, conduct this analysis here. And nonetheless, despite the fact that students may potentially um, depart from the teacher's influence 30 and more years afterwards, the teacher's influence is large enough, it's significant, significant enough to be observed into the second and third generation of, of students. So the multi-generational analysis, uh, these results here persist, even though potentially a departure of the influence can be observed here as well. These multi-generational effects must presume or must operate through the theoretical channel that these uh, second generation students are being taught by the original disciple at the time at which the original disciple had a style that was related to the one of the teacher. That is, let's say, between 11 and 20 years. Because if these second generation students are being taught 30 years later and we take the results of your you know, initial regression literally, then we wouldn't expect a positive effect. In fact, we may expect a negative effect. Yes and no, right? So, you know, it's not entirely clear perhaps how, whether the, the way how one teaches is in line mm. with the compositional style, right? Correct. You know, you, you teach 30 years later after, after you have been taught uh, yourself, your style of work is different, but the style of teaching maybe is not completely different, right? Yes. So, so, so it's not necessarily the case, perhaps, but, but a fair point, yeah. At the beginning of our conversation, you also mentioned in the set of additional questions that this type of exercise allows you to study, that you can look at whether it is only good styles that are passed on to their students, uh, or whether it is also bad styles, or, you know, styles associated with low quality. How do these regressions work and what do you find there? So um, I have mentioned that we have different quality measures of the student and of the teacher. And what we can look at is essentially to explore whether students who are imitating more their teachers, so students who are more similar to their teachers, are a higher quality depending on you know, what quality is their teacher. So here we explore um, what is the probability of the student to be a top quartile composer, right? Um, according to, to one of our four different measures of, of quality. And what we find is that students who, who are more similar to high quality teachers, so to teachers who are in the top uh, quality quartile or, 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 or in the second quality quartile, so, so who are actually above average, these students are more likely to be top quartile themselves. However, and this is, I think, a, a fascinating insight, if a student imitates more a bottom quartile quality teacher, he will have a lower chance of being top quartile himself. So this really may suggest that influence is, is observable, but it also translates into the quality of the student. If one imitates more a, a low quality teacher, 
um, one's chances of success later in life may perhaps uh, decrease. So this regression is a regression only on the pairs of connected individuals. Is correct. that correct? So there is no control group here. There is no control group, yes. So then I guess that the question that I have here is, is it possible that anybody who is similar to a high quality individual is more likely to be high quality themselves, not just their students? Because if you had like here a control group, then you could do these interactions between the connection and the quality of the teacher, but because there is no control group, is this just telling us that anybody who imitates a high quality individual, including their student, are more likely to be high quality themselves? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So so I, I think it has to be noted that there is not necessarily a reason, and actually the data would not support this, that high quality teachers are more similar to high quality composers in general. There is a very large um, variety in the in the quality of teachers and of students. And moreover, what we also observe is that there is no clear pattern in who teaches whom. So, so low quality teachers teach both high quality composers and low quality composers, and the same applies for high quality teachers. This is, by the way, a, a, re a result, I think, a characteristic um, and very restricted to the sample of famous composers. It's not a general result, um, but in our data, this is, this is, this is a result that, that, that is uh, uh, observed here. So with this in mind, I think that that's, even though I hear your point here, as long as some high quality teachers are composing similarly to other high quality composers, uh, as well as to some other lower quality composers, then we wouldn't have, I think, to worry about your, your comment here. So one other insight that, that you have is in terms of studying the, the, the competition between composers. Obviously, these composers, you know, live in cities and a city may have lots of com additional composers or less. And the one thing that, you know, one might expect is that maybe there is more creativity in cities in which there is more competition as the composers put more effort into differentiating themselves. But this is not the question that you study here. You study how the existence of competition affects the similarity between a student and his teacher. Why study this and what would your hypothesis be with respect to this relation? The honest answer is uh, because a very smart uh, reviewer suggested to look more at the environment of the teacher's influence, right? So, so essentially here, my main uh, uh, motivation or, 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 the, or, the, or the first kind of reason why this is conducted is to reconfirm the results. So reconfirm the existence of the teacher's influence in, in different settings. So, so while, while controlling for uh, the exposure to competition at a given place and time. And um, these estimations, indeed, they, they, they remain very similar with the baseline. So, so, so teachers remain influential independent of the environment in terms of competition. The side result here, and I think it's a very interesting result, is that composers who are exposed to more competition, so composers who are based in a city where there are more other composers, and perhaps a side remark here, bear in mind that the number of composers located in a city seems to be a, a fair enough proxy for competition in this setting, because the cities had usually very restricted cultural infrastructure. Structure. You know, even, even large cities 
had usually just one concert hall and one symphonic orchestra, just one opera house and one opera company. And in order to develop your works, in order to test your works, to prepare and then eventually to perform, you needed essentially to outcompete all the other composers in the city uh, and to be the best, right? Hence, the number of composers located in a, in a given time or during, during, during a given time in, a, in the same city seems to be a fair enough proxy for the extent of competition. And the result here is not very strong, but it suggests that with higher competition, there is lower similarity among composers. In other words, competition may be conducive to increase creativity, increase originality, which I think makes very much sense, right? You know, if you are exposed to other uh, peers and have to really outcompete them, uh, well, you know, you, you cannot just, you know, copy paste and, and be repetitive in your work. You really need to create something different, something unusual, something memorable. And this result in this table here seems to confirm this. Yes, broadly speaking, how do you think that this study contributes to our overall understanding of uh, creativity, the arts, and, and the economic history of these things? Yes, I, th I think that this, this paper shows a couple of things. So, so first of all, it shows that unconventional research methods or unusual settings and bizarre data sets can be sometimes used to answer questions that are of interest and of relevance, at least to some research in economics. And I think that this is this is a very you know um, um, nice um, trend that we observe. You know this this increasing uh, increasingly often published attempts at answering you know sometimes very big, very important questions in unusual ways. Um, in this particular paper here, the approach is obviously historical, and it is very much based on, on, the, on the arts, on, on music. And I think that the, the kind of interaction of both arts and history can provide a, a very nice foundation to study creativity. Um, creativity is very important nowadays for many obvious reasons. Everybody wants creativity. You know, policymakers want creative societies, people want creative cities, uh, companies want creative workers, and so on. However, throughout most of history, this was not the case. Um, creativity was not much valued by markets. So in the past, what was needed were punctual workers, hardworking, diligent workers. Think about farmers or factory workers. This has been very different for the arts. So, so in the arts, whether visual arts, uh, literary arts, or music, and so on, here creativity has been the key input from the very beginning. And the intersection of these two smaller fields of economic history and of cultural economics, this, this very small intersection, uh, which I would like to kind of um, label the economic history of the arts, this is a small domain that can contribute on creativity and can provide insights that may be of, of big relevance nowadays and also that are based on, on these very long-term insights. So, so, so you know, using, using historical data from, from many decades or even centuries, as in this paper here. And then finally, I think it's also interesting to just consider what the result presented and, and emerging in this paper really means, you know, teachers' influence. And 
and if you consider that you know we as researchers are you know many many other artistic uh, uh, well our artists are very much focused on the artistic output or we researchers on academic publications because this is visible to peers to critics or reviewers and to employers However, it could be perhaps via teaching when uh, some of the greatest influences occur and when the teacher really kind of becomes a, a memorable and, 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 and has a lasting influence on the student and, uh, and her work. Wonderful. Thank you, Carol, for coming to the program. Thank you very much, Jordi. It was a pleasure. My name is Jordi Blanesi-Vidal and this is The Visible Hand Podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to other papers that we discussed Interactory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.